millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to Dwell, a Cersei Institute podcast for homeschool moms by homeschool moms. I'm your co-host, Renee Mathis, and I'm here with my other co-host, Karen Kern. Hey, Karen. Hi, Renee. It's good to be here. I'm actually, we are actually recording in the Cersei office. We're all together. In one room, it is glorious. But before we start with today's podcast, I'd like to thank our sponsor and tell you a little bit more about Inquisicook. Are you searching for hands-on activities that explore the practical side of science? Look no further than your kitchen. Inquisicook blends food science and culinary arts into an engaging program that puts delicious food on the family table. Let Inquisicook do the teaching with lesson videos that speak to the student in a friendly conversational tone. Their online platform is easy to navigate and optimized for mobile, so the learning experience can move from the classroom to the kitchen without a hitch. They provide the recipes, instruction sheets, and student forms for every lesson, so there are no books to buy. And their instructor resources make assessing student progress a piece of cake, even for the busiest parents. Inquisicook was created by homeschoolers for homeschoolers, and they're passionate about turning curious students into intuitive cooks, not just recipe followers. Say goodbye to the tyranny of the ingredients list and say hello to utilizing what's in season, what's on sale, or what's in the fridge. Visit inquisitcook.com to view sample lessons, then check out the recipe gallery to see just how crave-worthy science can be. So I get to introduce our guest today. I'm looking right over there at Buck. <laughs> we have with us today Buck Holler. Buck is an employee at Cersei, and so we get to work together. And he is an apprenticeship head mentor. You have an apprenticeship group, and then you also do the Latin apprenticeship, mm -hmm. right? And uh, he runs our consulting division at Cersei, and he does all kinds of things. And we wanted to talk to him today because you might know, you might not know, that Buck used to be a rodeo cowboy, and he's a great name. Buck Holler for a cowboy, right? But now he is a Latin scholar. So we wanted to have him on today so we could talk about how, first of all, your story, how you went from a rodeo cowboy to teaching Latin and working for Cersei, and, and, it, and give some encouragement to the moms of boys who wonder if they're ever going to get, you know, out of the trees and out of the dirt and into their books. Mm. And I forgot to mention also that your wife, Rochelle, and you have three grown daughters and some granddaughters. Two granddaughters, right? All daughters and All daughters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, welcome. So, first of all, tell us your story and how you got here from... Sure. From where you started. From the ranch. From where I started. <laughs> well, I grew up in California, and uh, um, I can come back to that. But uh, eventually, my uh, education, once I uh, 
decide, well, I, I left California when I was 18 to go to Texas. I, at that time, I was in high school rodeo, and my junior year in high school, I made it to the California State Finals. So every state in the union has a high school rodeo association. And uh, the state's usually broken up into districts. And so during the year, you have competitions within your district. And then the, usually the top five cowboys in each event um, go to the state finals. And then the top four at the state finals go to the national finals. And so my junior year, I made it to the state finals. which was in Bakersfield, California. Part, I grew up there partly when I was a kid. And uh, then my senior year, I made it to the state finals again, but I, I'm uh, actually was a top three. No, well, I, I, I scored third in the state of California my senior year and went to Gillette, Wyoming. And Gillette was where they had the national high school finals. And so from Gillette, I left California, Red Bluff, where I was born. And, and uh, I left, I had a 79 Chevy Love. <laughs> through, through, everything, through everything I had in there. <laughs> And uh, drove out to the uh, where I stayed part of the summer in Nevada, working on a dude ranch outside of Wells, Nevada. And then I went to from there to Gillette, and I was there for two weeks during the rodeo. And drove down to Texas because I moved to Dallas to go to welding school. And uh, instead of going to college, I went to a trade school. Uh, I was going to be a welder. I'd welded all through high school. Can I jump in and ask you how your academics were in high school? Because you were like riding a rodeo and welding. Were you also doing your reading and your writing and your math? I, my freshman year, yes. <laughs> <laughs> After that, well, I did really well. It's, it's um, middle all the way up through seventh and eighth grade, and uh, I was an American Legion. Uh, I won the American Legion award when I was in eighth grade, where it was given to me, whatever. And then I went, my principal in middle school had set up all my classes when I went to high school. At this time, I was living with my father because my parents were separated and divorced. And my father was working, he was running an advertising agency and then he was also a musician. So my father played and so he had multiple jobs. So I was very much last to be my whole childhood, mm -hmm. even, even living with my mother. Um, and so, when I got into school, my dad watching over my education was not, that wasn't the biggest you know, uh, concern at the time. It was mainly survival. And so I went into high school and I had all of these advanced classes my, my freshman year. And I remember, I remember going into, it was my freshman year, I had a biology class. I had never taken biology. I go into biology class. Um, I think after that class, the first day I went to the school counselor and I found out that I could take um, animal science in the ag department and that would count for biology. Oh, so I got know. out of biology. Of yeah. <laughs> so I, I taught for almost 20 years in Christian classical schools. And so I used to tell my students because they were, they had all my high school students, they had to take biology, chemistry, physics, all these courses, calculus, pre-cal. And I was like, yeah, I never took any of those. <laughs> 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 so, so I was like, well, how did you do that? Well, in the state of California in the 1980s and 90s, I could take animal science and that can't add in the ag department. And so I, could, I raised steers and, and went to the fair. That counted for my biology classes. And then for, and I didn't have to take any foreign languages. So my students always, and now I was a Latin yeah. teacher. But, <laughs> I, so I, but there was a requirement where you had to take two years of a foreign language 
or a fine art. And woodshop counted as a fine art. So instead of Spanish, I took woodshop. <laughs> so, so I got, I, I lived in the ag department and the woodshop and kind of my uh, sophomore, junior, senior year, I was, I was doing, you know, I was take, I was basically in sh shop class most of the time. As but well. now you're remodeling a house, and so yeah, all of this is very handy. Yeah, well, it, it has come in handy for sure. Yeah, but um, yeah, so I did that, and uh, so I went to California. My uncle was a welder. I wanted to weld, so I go out study do welding. While I was welding, I was working as a carpenter in North Dallas in Capel. I was just down the road from the Cowboys uh, training camp at the time. I don't know if they're still there, but... Um, and then uh, I finished, and when I finished, I went back to California and decided not to weld. I went, I went back to training horses because all through high school, my dad, my dad was a horse trainer. We worked, he worked for a, a dude ranch in Platina, California. It's called Our Wild Horse Dude Ranch. And so I started working with him and training the horses. So I went back and started training horses for world champion um, rainers and cutters and stuff, and cutting horses, c competition horses. And, uh, but you can't, it's just, you know, you, to make a living like that, was, it's, it's pretty tough. And uh, so I, at, at some point, I, I landed, ended up going back to church because I haven't been going to church for most of this time of my youth and uh, ended up meeting my wife. And, um, and at that point, we, we, I went back to school to, to Bible college in, in Northern California. When I finished that, I moved to, to Massachusetts to seminary where I studied theology and languages. And uh, anyway, so from, from that, so I would go over to the East Coast of Boston and come back to California to work. And that's when I got into education because uh, I, the, our church had a school, and I was started teaching in fifth grade. I was teaching fifth graders, you know, all subjects in, in a small Christian school, and so we were there for a couple of years, and then we decided to to move out of the state of California. Um, and when we did, we, I took a job. I had two phone calls. I applied to about 20, 25 schools. I had one school in uh, Maryland that called me, another one in New York City. Geneva School of Manhattan, and they offered me a job, so we moved. We had three children, and uh, we moved to New York City, and uh, to for three years um, working there. Um, which from there we came to North Carolina. So that's a long and short of it. So when I met you in 2008, because we were in the apprenticeship together, right. we were in the same class. Andrew was our head mentor. Um, I believe you had just moved to Manhattan. <clears throat> you hadn't been there very long. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so at this point in your life, no more cowboy, no more rodeo. After high school, you didn't do rodeo anymore. No, I rodeoed after high school in the mm -hmm. amateur circuit um, and then also in the PRCA as an amateur. The PRCA is a professional rodeo cowboys association, the NFR, Reno, mm -hmm. Nevada. People are probably somewhat familiar with it. Um, what was your event? I was a saddle bronc rider at that time. And in high school, I rode bulls, and I had an accident my freshman year. So I drew a bull. At Red Bluff, California was the home of John Grounding, um, Grounding Brother Rodeo Company, Grounding Brothers. And John Grounding at the time owned a bull called Red Rock. And this was back in the 1980s. And there was something called the Challenge of the, <coughs> Challenge of the Champions. And at that time, Lane Frost was the world champion bull rider. 
Now they made a movie on this called Eight Seconds. Mm -hmm. if, so for those who are familiar with this, and John Ground is in the road in, in the movie and stuff. So, but but my dad did the advertising for that in California. So it was the best out of seven. There were going to be seven rodeos, and it was and Red Rock at that time was a bull that had gone out like something around two hundred eighty six, two hundred eighty some odd attempts, and nobody had ever ridden Red Rock. And uh, but he was a docile bull in the sense that we used to go out to the groundies. And kids from the, like the school, the third graders and fourth graders would come out and he'd have uh, some panels set up and Red Rock would be in there and John would be in there standing next to the bull and the kids would come in and he'd lift the kids and put them up on the bull. They'd take a picture of them, nice. take them off and put them, he just went through like 30, 40 kids, yeah. just putting them up on taking these pictures and he just, he would just stand there. But in the arena, he was, he just turned into a, you know, you know, a bucking, you know, really ranked bull and nobody, well, anyway, so Lane gets him. The first time Lane rides Red Rock was in Redding, California. I was there at that rodeo. It was a night rodeo, and we were filming it. And by the end of it, Lane Frost had, had ridden Red Rock four out of the seven times. He's the only cowboy to have ever ridden him. And then they retired him. And so Red Rock was retired, and they, he was in a breeding bull. And so what would happen is, is the contractors would get these young bulls, and before they would put them into the professional circuit, they would try them out at the high school rodeos. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I was a freshman in high school. We had a high school rodeo in Cottonwood, California, and I drew a bull, it's called Wolfman Skull. And Wolfman Skull was the grandson of Red Rock. Oh. And, um, and he was a little, he was a very, really small bull, and I drew him and uh, I still have it on video. We, um, my, my parents were recording it. And uh, anyway, so he, he threw me down and, and horned me t twice behind the, behind the ear and fractured my skull. So um, knocked me out. I was out for a couple of days, ended up in the hospital, uh, lost, you know, spinal fluid, fractured, busted the eardrum, all that, all those things. And so that ended the bull riding. My dad was I guess like, so. yeah, you're like yeah. oh. so from there I went to bucking horses. And so that which was safe. And that's safer? <laughs> a little bit safer. Did they don't wear, have horns. They didn't have horns. Did y'all wear helmets back then? No. So <laughs> the, the interesting thing is is so all that came right after. Right after that, uh, um, well, so shortly after that, this is in nineteen ninety. I think, right, 89, 1990, and then Lane Frost uh, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, had an accident and died. Mm -hmm. wow. uh, a bullet hooked him in the chest and it, a uh, 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 rib uh, punctuated his lung and, or heart or something and ended up dying. And after that, they made protective vests mandatory for all high school rodeos and bull riding. So, but this was right after I had finished doing riding bulls. So when I was, when I was riding, helmets and vests and you just didn't see them. It was just guys going out there dressed, you know, just in a shirt, pants, shafts, and spurs, right? And so, so I never had to wear a vest. Now there was a little bit of a pride thing. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to use any protection. This is you know, that's for that's, that's not the real cowboy. And so, yeah, for, and then so I rode. And then what happened was my senior year in high school with the rodeo, they made uh, the vests were mandatory for all bull riders, and then they my senior year they were making helmets mandatory for all bull riders because I, I think shortly after that Tuff Hedeman was a world champion. He was a friend of Lane Frost and he drew a bull called Bodacious and he 
totally smashed the, his he had a, his face has been totally reconstructed um, from this accident nearly killed him and um, so then they made helmets mandatory for high school rodeo the year after I graduated in 93 they made vest mandatory for all rough stock riders so I never had to wear a vest even riding bucking horses but now today in high school rodeo it's, it's a man it's mandatory that all rough stock um, cowboys wear protective vests and which is a really good thing, so because it deflects the uh, the the uh, force of a of a hoof. You know, I, mm -hmm. I've got scars on my one on my head and one on my chin from from being kicked in the face. You know, from horses and stuff riding. Huh. But anyways, yeah. So okay, I'm sure we could draw a lot of conclusions about how being kicked in the face could prepare you to teach fifth graders. <laughs> but um, so how did how did that part of your life experience? play into and affect what kind of teacher you are today. Yeah, what led me into teaching, I think a lot of it was the round, right? So I, early on for Cersei, when I came to Cersei, I, uh, I was this 2007, 2008, sometime around the end of the apprenticeship. Um, and then at that time, I think the, the, there was a blog, and it was called Quiddity for Cersei. And I wrote an, an article way back then, and I called it the round pen. I remember writing that because at that time there was MySpace, and I think I even had a MySpace, and I had written or or my journal or something. Yeah, like that. way back then. And uh, I had written this, but and it, that that was the analogy. So I, for training horses, I worked in the round pen. I started all the babies, so the, the three-year-olds, and so before they would go off to the finish trainer, I would start them, and it was the, every horse goes through the round pen, so it's. It's like kindergarten for horses, right? And and so hundreds of horses that I I, I mean I, that I trained over a series of 10, 15, 20 years. And uh, and what I realized in doing that was one of the pieces of advice my dad gave me was to take what you can use and throw out the rest, because every trainer has an idea about how to do it and how to how to train horses. And so I was working for a world champion trainer and um, and he taught me a lot. And so the round pin came a place with these horses where we'd start and we had to teach them all the fundamentals. So I had to teach a horse how to, how to lope, how to stop, how to, how to walk, how to position his body, how to twist, how, how to wear to position his head, how to bend the neck, how to change leads, you know, how to move from the left lead to a right lead and all these kinds of, it's so technical. There's so much technique in this and that. My job was to teach the horse all the fundamentals. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is that every single horse was different. They, they all had their own personality. It was, it's very interesting. And so basically the way I described it was I could not, there was no single technique that I could take and apply and it would work on every horse. So what I had to do was the basics, the fundamentals, and I had a goal that I had to get the horse to. But then I had to figure out, okay, so this horse's disposition, you know, his character or characteristics, and I had to figure out what worked best and how to get him from here to there. And so I had to adapt my training to the horse. Uh, and so I think for me, the round pen, you know, I was, I was the sort of the teacher in the classroom, right? I was the one um, training, teaching in, in the round pen and the horse was my student. And, uh, and that was the parallel that I drew. And I think what led me into the classroom eventually was just that that was kind of the same thing. You know, I could come into a classroom and I had a goal, had a subject, whatever it was that I was teaching. And the task, the challenge was 
how to how to teach the students this to get them from point A to point B. And uh, anyways, that was the parallel that I had from it. For whatever reason, that seemed to, to seem to work. And then each student is different. Right. Yeah. You're each... teaching the class as a whole, but you're paying attention to individual students, just like. Well, yeah. I mean, this is uh, right. Not all the students are the same. You can't. You can't just. It's not a. It's not a conveyor belt. It's not. It's. They're not mechanical. And and so. And I think the Phaedrus in particular, this was one of the things that I loved the most about the Phaedrus when we read it in the apprenticeship. And at the end of it, there's a point where Socrates says that the, the, the task of the rhetor was to understand the nature of the subject and the nature of each individual soul, and then to bring those together. And it's like, that, that's exactly, like that was it. And, and, I, and I think that's right. I mean, I use a basic technique for teaching Latin, but but I have to be able to I'd be, have to be able to read my students as well and and uh, figure out okay so how like you're struggling with this is not the same as a student over here struggling with another aspect of it and obviously doing it the way we're doing it's not working so how how can we figure out to make it work and so. So tell me what you can say as an adult who learned Latin, not having grown up in Latin class your whole life, yeah. and you had to learn it as an adult, and then we have homeschool moms who want to teach classically, and they don't know Latin. So what's it like? You know, we want to encourage them that, yes, you can do this. Um, obviously, you can join Buck's Latin apprenticeship and be immersed in it, but for, for someone who just like, hey, I'm not here, and you know, I want to learn Latin so I can teach my kids, what advice would you have for her? Well. Yeah, there's a, there are, I, I think they're myths in some sense, this idea that, that somehow children are better at learning languages than adults. And there, there are differences for sure between how children learn and how adults learn and can approach. But yeah, I didn't come to Latin until I, I was in my 30s. And, uh, and then I was just, I was pretty much an autodidact. I mean, I taught myself by picking up a book and then not, and I understand not, you know, this isn't, but I, I ended up taking classes later or studying under, you know, other gentlemen, other folks. So you were teaching, you were learning it in order to teach was, it. So you right. were assigned, you're going to be That's teaching right. Latin and you didn't know any Latin, so right. you had to learn Latin. And all I had, to, and I knew that all I had to do was stay one or two days ahead of my friends. Right. We've been there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was, I, there were times where some of the students knew more than me. And I got checked a lot, you know, and, and that was, and I didn't, anyways. So it's it's not that, but it took years. It's not, I mean, I taught for 13 years at the school in uh, in North Carolina that I was at, and where I accepted the job. And so I was there 13 years. So, and and to get to now where I am now, it's not like it happened overnight. I mean, but I'm, I'm in the classroom five days a week teaching three or four classes a day. And I think just, I mean, that's a, it's, so it's hard. I don't pretend that learning a language is easy. It's not. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard. And so um, I don't know the, the advice. I mean, I, I think the thing is that it's possible. It's, it's like once you're an adult, it's, it's all over and there's no hope. You can't possibly learn language. I, I don't think so. I think you most certainly can. But, but then again, it's like, well, what's the goal? Is, is the goal 
I mean, I grew to love Latin. I didn't love it for a long time. I had opportunities while I was in school to take it. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to learn Latin. That's, that's, that's I'm not interested. And so, but it wasn't until I actually started studying it that I actually fell in love with it. And not all people are language people. I understand that, you know, even my students, you know, not all my students are going to love the language. And as much as my goal is to help you learn to love the language, um, I realized that that's not going to happen. So, but there, there's the, the value and the beauty of it is there. Um, but what's the advice? I think it's, you know, to, uh, I think with learning the language, one of the things that we focus on, it, well, this would be an assessment issue. And I think when we talk about language and there's two things, one, the goals, why is, why is it being taught? And secondly, Assessment is important because the way that we teach the language is so that we can assess it. In other words, in, in language, there's, there's two, there are three actual things that take place when you're learning the language. But two of them in particular is, is we think of it in terms of the four language arts that we reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And two of those are passive and two of them are active. So reading and listening are passive. Those are activities where the language is coming in right that we're receiving it and then writing and speaking are, are active that's where the language is being produced so there's a difference between um, receiving the language versus producing the language all of assessment when it comes down to language learning is based on language production mm -hmm. so the only way that we assess language is based on what the student writes or tells us so it's all based on producing language mm -hmm. That is the most difficult aspect of language and is the last thing to come. So, so it's like, and so in other words, the way we approach it in terms of our teaching is that we take the most difficult thing first and then we, we, we use that in order to, um, to, to, to assess our, our, our children on the language and it's difficult, it's a struggle, it's very hard. And it's also not really a good indicator of how much language they have acquired. Because if you've ever had this experience of having a thought or an understanding and then the difficulty of trying to communicate it, mm -hmm. like we, we, we have that all the time. And just because I have a comp, like if, just because I have a difficulty in trying to communicate something doesn't mean that I don't understand something. Right, I, yeah, I and mean, even with little kids, their receptive vocabulary is much greater than right. their expressive vocabulary. They can, they can understand a whole lot more right. than they can put into words. And so I think one of the things that we've been talking about, Matt and I, in particular Matt Bianco, is that the way that we should think about maybe assessing language is rather than thinking of it in terms of the language production, which is called output, think about it in terms of input. And so making language, I, not necessarily making it fun, but taking the one of the things uh, some theorists talk about is what's called an effective filter. And an effective filter is that, that things like stress end up causing barriers to actual, to, and I don't think this happens maybe just with language, it could happen with the, particularly any subject. Math. Math. <laughs> well, frustration, confusion, right. stress ends up throwing up a, a barrier that then makes it impossible to move forward. And so my goal as a teacher was always, how can I remove the stress? Right? How can I? And so I, there were several things that I did in the classroom that I believe was removing those barriers, taking the stress off, 
and saying where my interest is here is to engage the language and enjoy it and to see it and and I'm not here to stress you out. So I tried to remove stress and fear in the classroom. How did you do that? Like besides saying, don't be stressed. Like, did, yeah. you, did you use it to play games with them? Like, yeah. did, you, did you eliminate some of the assessments that are tests and say, you know, I, I think yeah. that in the younger grades, that would be great for language, but I know sometimes they're required. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's what that raises up a number of questions. I agree. I, in fact, why we grade the language, I'm not even sure. Um, but but we could think about if if you have to put a mark down, we could put some kind of mark. We could figure out ways to do this. But but practically, yeah. So every Friday, my class was was basically a game. I'd bring my guitar. We would do songs. Now the songs that I was singing were also classic. Many of them were classic medieval and and classical Roman songs, Catullus, Tibullus, uh, Carmina, Borana, and, and some of the, like some of these you would probably know if, if I, you know, I sang them, but, but I would, so I bring my guitar, the kids loved it. Like Friday was like, we just do songs or we would play games. Um, as far as homework went, you know, this is a whole issue of, you know, brick and mortar school. I always had a hard time with this. The kids are there working 35 hours a week, and then we give them a double shift when they go home. <laughs> <laughs> That's why people homeschool. And it's like, why do I, I don't even want to go home and work yeah. a double shift? Why would I make my students do it? And so, and there's always these battles about homework and stuff. So I said, yeah, forget the homework. What I asked, well, what I asked the students to do was 20 minutes of reading. Um, like they spent. So when basically it wasn't even graded. So I stopped grading homework for one. And, and I really, the, when I, it took, in terms of assigning homework, my assignment was to give, was time-based. I wanted to spend 20 minutes listening. I mean, and I think that's actually more important than anything, rather than doing exercises or anything else. And now there's so much audio that's available that you can listen to. And plus the, the curriculum we are using was, there was audio that was associated with it. So I want you what to What were you using when you were teaching Latin? Well, at first we were using a, a program called Cambridge, yeah. um, but then we we moved to um, uh, Lingua Latina, which is what I've been teaching since I think 2016. Lingua Latina. So that yeah. that that seems like a curriculum good for homeschoolers. Is that has, is that is that the one of the stories? Yes, it's the thing about Lingua Latina though. I think it's the best curriculum out there, but but it's it requires. You can teach it, but the way that it's written is that it is written to engage the language fully and actively. And the temptation is, is if you don't, as a teacher, if you don't have it down well enough to present it that way, the, def the, the temptation is, is to default back and, and go back into a mode where you're, you're just translating sentences. Right. And, and so I, I really moved completely and entirely away from that. I never have my students translate anything. But because again, that's, that's the hardest thing to do because if you think about it, to translate a sentence, you actually have to know two languages. You have to know the language that you're translating into and you have to know the language that you're translating from. And in order to, to do that well, you have to actually have mastered both languages. And so, so then the question is, well, how can you tell if they understand without translating? Well, there, there are ways of doing that, but I mean, so anyhow, the, the, the thing is, is moving away from that. And so it, Lingua Latina could be 
done well, but I think it does require some help and assistance on like how how can we do this? So are there online lists so that a mom who wants their children to learn that way, are there online programs well, that they can plug into? Because if the mom doesn't know it. Yeah, there, there is. And there's other things out there too. I, I usually plug, there's two in particular that I typically plug. I mean, Pictadicta is out there as a- Pictadicta. Um, okay. Roman Rhodes yeah. uh, publishes it. And um, Ruben Jensen was one of the ones that I think started writing that. And, and so that's, intended as a primer for lingua latina like it's written with lingua latina in mind mm. um the other program is dr laura i out at, out at dallas university and she has uh i think it's something like um latin story time or something like i can't remember the actual name of it right now but she's been writing a curriculum for um latin for for elementary level and it's and it's much of it is encountering the language through pictures through song through through t what's called tpr total physical response where you know I, there's one little it's funny because i taught a i taught a song um like last year at the bedouin and dr ike was there and the song was flaybot letus and which is going to be a song in the book that we have coming out with the latin song and games but but uh we did that song and then I went, I was looking back on the website again at their curriculum, and she has a recording of, of, a, of a, there's a, there's a recording of a young girl, five or six, and she's got a little stuffed bunny, and she's, she's singing Flaybot Lepus, and in part of, which means the, 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 the wailing bunny is, is kind of what it, it's just, it's a rabbit hunt, it's a medieval song. And, and there's parts of it where it describes the parts of the, the rabbit where it says, you know, the, the rabbit has long ears and a short tail. And the little girl, when it comes to the part, long goss owl raised, so she grabs the ear, she holds it up, you know, and brevis cauda, so, you know, a short tail, and she points to the tail, and then the, a big jump, and she's making this big jump. So in other words, that, that's total physical response, where she's hearing the words, and she's associating the words with the action that they, they relate to it. So they, they're learning through not just, not just reading or translating, but they're learning through hearing and physical, like they're using the senses. Yeah, what a great way to engage several senses. Yeah, so I think that's how, that's, those are ways that I think you start moving away from getting the stress out of the classroom and, and, and enjoying the language and encountering the language poetically is really what we're talking yeah. about, a poetic knowledge of the language, yeah. So I have one more question. Um, Times nearly up, but um, the mom who's who has boys and they just want to be outside and just to drag them in and they want to get their work done as soon as they can and maybe they don't do a good job because they want to get outside. Encourage that mother. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, I know you had girls, but you also had a farm. Yeah, so, I had girls, so but, but I raised them like boys. I yes, that one of them told me that. This year, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I one of my dogs. I think all three of them could actually go out, catch a chicken, and then take it from the pen and put it on the table. So it's like they, they, you know, they, yeah. they, know, <laughs> they know the whole process. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I mean, part of it, I mean, is, is since my own life. I, you know, I'm thankfully I had a I, while my dad was not. My parents, by no, my dad, by no means, hovered, you know, was over me watching all of my work and stuff. But what he did encourage me was a lot was through through rodeo in particular. He was always there. He took me to all my rodeos, 
and we we were we spent a lot of time outside and doing stuff and you know what i know our time's running but a funny story was when we moved to north carolina first time um, we lived out the uh, uh, the house was on 27 acres it was a field farm field where the school owned the property was going to build the school and right next to it were some woods now that was kind of a weird concept because out west woods meant like like a whole forest but you know here it's, it can be like a little one a acre, one yeah. acre thing it's called woods and so our girls at that time were outside and i think our oldest was in fifth grade so it was like fifth grade third grade kindergarten and they're all outside playing on these 27 acres and the next thing we knew the sheriff a sheriff car came up pulled up in our driveway <laughs> we're like what's going on dude we just came out of new york city where we like all i had was a sidewalk you know now it's like freedom <laughs> and they're running all over the all over the 27 acres coming in and out of woods well somebody had seen these three kids coming in and out of these woods and they called the sheriff and the sheriff came out came out to check on it and uh we're like because they were playing outside you know and it's, it's kind of funny because you think i i, I don't know that i see kids outside like they were when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so he was telling stories about his mom used to lock the door and wouldn't let him come back in until dinner, you know, the sheriff. He was a pretty nice guy, but... Uh, so I, I, you know, there's a part of me that says that that part of childhood, like there, there just has to be, there has to be the play, but it, and it doesn't mean that they're not going to, you know, not everybody goes into their 30s and decides to pick up another, you know, language and then ends up studying Latin. I, I, I get that. And Hebrew. You know Hebrew fluently as well. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, biblical languages. But, uh, I, and those were, you know, I don't know what happened. Those are just decisions. You know, my brothers didn't follow that same course, you know, and we grew up together. And they, you know, they they work in a factory right now is, is what they do, you know. And um, so the... the I, I think but maybe taste, like, you know, there has to be things that, and I think it's, it's really, it's the idea of wonder too. It's like the, like, there has to be some encounter with something beautiful about language or whether, maybe, maybe it is just the songs, you know, maybe it is like they've learned this fun song and that sticks with them. And 10 years from now, they decide, you know what, that, that, somehow they stumble across Catullus again in a different setting yeah. and it sparks an interest that takes them back into Latin and you know or, or whatever it, it may be so yeah, I don't know it's the power of the tree the good and the beautiful you know to to form a life well and, and in particular beauty I think yeah. Yeah, yeah that encounter of beauty is that which that draws us into because beauty is, is is alarming and in one sense and also mysterious and it's I think that encounter with something that's that's inviting but yet not fully understood is what draws us to to want to pursue it further you know, and opens the door to the transcendent yeah, yeah right well thank you for being here with us it was really fun to all be in one room and be <laughs> talking about these things and so for our listeners if you're interested in the apprenticeship or the latin apprenticeship there's lots of information on our website you can contact us and we also have the us. summer intensive summer what is your email tell everybody your email um bach b-u-c-k at circeinstitute.org so thank you for being with us sure. and here's to home
Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.